Amen. If you have a Bible, take it out and find the book of Daniel. Daniel's in the Old Testament. We're going to be flipping through the book of Daniel. We don't have time to look at all of the ground that we're going to cover. At least we don't have time to read all of the ground that we're going to try to cover. But we are going to read a few selections from Daniel to get the idea of what God was doing in this book. There's some notes in the outline. You can follow along in the notes. Our Sunday morning series is called Little G Gods. We're talking about things in our lives that most of them are good things. Most of them in and of themselves are not bad, wicked, immoral things. But they're things that we allow to become ultimate things. So we take a good thing, we receive it from God, and then very, very easily we allow that to become an ultimate thing. In essence, we allow it to become a God, a little G God, that we worship and we love and we trust and we obey. And so over the last few weeks we've talked about love and children and money and success. This morning we're going to talk about power. And as we talk about power, we're going to try to walk and chew gum at the same time. And I'm going to leave some of the application to you. We'll try to make some specific application as we go. But I'm going to leave some of this for you as we think through this little G-God. The issue here is that power tempts us on multiple levels. And the little G-God of power may look a little bit different in your life than it does in the person sitting next to you or in my life. And so let me just mention briefly before we even jump in at all. Just some of the levels that power might operate in in your life as a little g-god. One would be the political level, where you feel like a little bit more political power, maybe not for you personally, but for the group that you affiliate with or identify with. You think, if we just had a little more political power in this group, then things would be a whole lot better off. That may be an issue in your life. It also may be an issue for you on a spiritual level, or we could say a church level where you feel like if, if my opinion carried a little more weight at church or if my little circle of people had a little more sway at church, then things would be a whole lot better off. That may be an issue for you. It also could just be an issue for you personally in your life where you feel like you're, you're buying into this illusion that you are actually in control of your life. And every now and then life comes along and punches you in the face and reminds you you're not in control of your life. You may need to deal with the the little G-God of power just on a personal level in your own life. And so we're going to talk about power, and in the back of our minds, we have those three levels sort of operating. This may be a reality for me in sort of a political realm. This may be an issue for me in sort of a church realm. Or this may be an issue for me just in my heart, in feeling like I'm in control of my life or wanting to have control over the people around me. So in a minute, we're going to look at Daniel 2. Three and four. And like I said, we don't have time to read all of it, but we're going to read some of the high points and we're going to ride this roller coaster through Daniel 2, 3, and 4 and talk about how power played itself out as a little G God in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. First, let's talk about signs in your life or my life. Signs that power may be an issue for us. It may be a little G God that we need to deal with. Number one, fear becomes rampant in your life. Fear becomes rampant in your life. And just quickly, think about this on the three levels we've talked about, okay? First of all, the political level. In our country, if you've noticed lately, and by lately I mean since I've been alive, okay? (laughs) 
since I've been able to vote in presidential elections because that's my experience. Every time a major election rolls around, the fear gets cranked up. And you got sort of depending on who's running or who's in office or who's leading in the polls, we always end up with a group of people that say things like, I tell you what, if so-and-so gets elected, it's going to be so bad, I'm moving out of the country. I don't think any of those people ever do leave the country, but they always say it. So-and-so gets elected, I'm out of here. On the other hand, you've got a whole other group of people that start to say things like, this is really scary. I think the end times are coming to pass. I think we're about to elect the Antichrist as the president. It's going to be, you know, the mark of the beast is coming, and people just get scared and upset and uptight. And when people ask me about that, I just want to say, you realize that for thousands of years, people have said the same thing. Every election, every succession of a king or a queen, every person who was in charge of the, of the church at large, people have had this same fear over and over and over and over and over again, and fear just becomes palpable. Maybe a sign that that's an issue for you. What about on a church level? One of the things that's constant in our world today is change. There's always change, and that affects the church. And the balance we try to hold in the church is, on the one hand, we don't want to change on the essentials of the faith, meaning we want to guard the deposit entrusted to us. We want to stand fast on the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It is never going to change. On the other hand, you know as well as I do that things change, even in church. And some people look up in church sometimes and things have changed, and that just is scary for them. And they look around and they say, it's just not the same experience that I used to have or that we used to have. And that can be a fearful thing. On a personal level, I already mentioned the fact that every now and then in life, you just sort of get punched in the nose by life itself. Living in the United States, we all live pretty comfortable lives. When you live a pretty comfortable life, there's not a whole lot of suffering. It's so easy for me and it's so easy for you to slide into this mentality that we're actually in control of our lives, that we're sort of calling our own shots. And we're just sort of one medical diagnosis away or one pink slip away or one tragedy away from realizing we're not. And sometimes when you get that punch in the nose from life and you realize I am not in control of anything, that can be a terrifying thing for people especially when they've been living under the illusion, and it is an illusion, that I'm in control of my life. So one sign that power may be a little g-god in your life, it may be a good thing that you've elevated to an ultimate thing, is that fear is just out of control, rampant in your life. Second and third, we'll talk about these together. You believe your opponents are the problem, and you believe only your side can save the day. If that's your mindset then power is probably an issue in your life. I hope you can see how we fall into that trap in the political realm, right? And I'll just, I'll do my best to be equal opportunity offenders, okay, for all of you here. Those on the right are constantly saying the left is the problem, and if you just listen to us, it would all be better. And those on the left are looking the other direction, saying the right is the problem, and if you just listen to us, It would be so much better. And then you've got the high-minded independents who sort of try to stand in the middle, and they say, you're both the problem, and if you just listen to us, everything would be so much better. 
I hope that you have experienced in your life and seen this and you become convinced of it. If, if, you, if you don't see it in experience, I hope you just believe it from the Bible, that the problem in our country or the world is not this political group or that political group or the ones who try to pretend like they're not a part of a political group. The problem is us. You can put whoever you want to put in power. If it's not Jesus Christ, you're going to have a sinful person leading sinful people. You're going to have problems. The mindset that if we just had this group or we just had that group in power, everything's going to be fixed is an illusion that sometimes we chase. Now, you say, should we just not care at all? Should we just throw our hands up? Should we just, whatever we get, we get? No, absolutely not. We want to be involved. We want to... We want to be passionate about the things that the Scripture is passionate about. We want to seek justice and seek what's right. But if your mentality is, they are the problem and I'm the solution, you've fallen for the trap. You've fallen for the lie that power can fix everything, at least if it's power in your hands or under your control. You can see the same thing in churches. Okay, I haven't been around church as long as some of you have been around church. I've been around longer than others of you have been around. What I've seen in my experience as a pastor for about a decade is that I've seen and heard just about every different group possible blamed for the ills of the church. I've heard people say, it's the young people are the problem today. And you know what the young people have told me? It's the old people. They're the problem. And I've been in church situations where the women of the church have said, it's the men. The men are the problem. They won't do anything. They're a bunch of lazy bums. And I've been in church situations where the men have come to me and said, these women are too bossy. They, they won't let us do anything. What's the, they're the problem. It's not us. It's them. I, it's this group. It's that group. And usually in a church setting, you know that power is an issue if you find yourself saying things like this. If they would just listen to me, I would know how to fix everything at church. They just listen to me. Why don't they ask me? I see exactly what the problem is. They just do what's so obvious to do. Or you have groups saying, look, we would just fix everything in church if they would just make a change once every hundred years. Just sort of inch forward into at least the 16th century. We could just change and keep up a little bit. Or the flip side, if we could just dial it back and go back to the way we used to do it, that would fix everything in the church. All of those mindsets, all of those ideas are rooted in the idea, if I had the power and they would just listen to me and it could all be done my way, it would all be fixed. Look, we can do it your way or we can do it my way. We can do it the new way. We can do it the old way. The bottom line is, at least in our church, I won't speak for other churches. Let's just talk about ours. The reality is you have a group of people who are sinners leading a group of people who are sinners. Like We can change all kinds of things or we can stay the same forever. You're still going to have problems. And if your mentality is a little more power for this group or a little more power for myself and, and those who think like me will fix a problem, you bought the lie. Last idea, this is more on a personal level. You believe power will lead to autonomy. And autonomy is just a theological term that means self-rule. Self-rule. Meaning, this is the, the original temptation back in the garden with Adam and Eve They're created to live under God's rule. 
And the temptation is, God doesn't know what's best for you. And things would be better for you if you just decided to do them your way. If you just grasp for this power that God doesn't want you to have, everything will be better. And the lie in the garden is the same lie today. We think that these little G gods dangled out in front of us will fix everything. And when you turn around and you get the little G God that you've been chasing after, you realize, I'm not ruling myself. I'm now ruled by this little G God. This thing didn't deliver me. This thing didn't give me freedom. This thing didn't make me happy. This thing brought only misery and destruction into my life. And that's certainly true with power. Look in the book of Daniel. We're going to talk about a man named Nebuchadnezzar who learned these lessons, let's just say, the hard way. He learned them the hard way. Nebuchadnezzar lived roughly 500 B.C. He was the king of an empire known as Babylon. Which means, in his day, he was the most powerful man in the world. So when we look at his story, we see somebody who had so much power. Right? It's so vivid to see this little G-God in his life because of the amount of power that he had. And you may sit here and you may say, well, I don't have as much power as Nebuchadnezzar. It's hard for me to relate to that. That's where you've got to do the, the thought work and the heart work of backing up and saying, okay, but maybe this is an issue for me on a political level. Maybe this is an issue for me on a church level. Maybe this is an issue for me on a personal level. But when you look at Nebuchadnezzar, you see him on this roller coaster. You see him going up and down thinking power is what he, he needs and what's going to satisfy him and give him security and then realizing it's not all that it's cracked up to be. And unfortunately for Nebuchadnezzar, it's a ride that goes up and down. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, in one of his military conquests, He marched against the city of Jerusalem. He conquered the city, tore the walls down, destroyed the temple, slaughtered thousands upon thousands of people, and took many of the best and the brightest and the most fit in the land and brought them back to exile in Babylon. And one of the young men that he carried from Jerusalem back to Babylon was a man named Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, we just see some interesting stories about Nebuchadnezzar. You can look at Daniel 2 and 3 and 4, and you can read them from Daniel's perspective, and you can sort of learn one set of lessons, or you can look at them, as we're going to try to do this morning, from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, and we're going to try to learn something about the little g-god of power. So look in your Bible at Daniel 2, verse 1. I'm going to put all of these scriptures up on the screen. You can follow along, you can flip along, or you can look up on the screens. This is what we read in Daniel 2.1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Remember we already said that if little G God is an issue in your life, one of the symptoms of that is fear. This man has some dreams and he's terrified by the dreams. He's so terrified he does something completely irrational. You understand fear often makes people do irrational things. And the irrational thing that he does is he says, look, I'm calling in all the magicians, all the enchanters, all the wise men, and first, you're going to tell me what I dreamed, and second, you're going to explain to me what it means. So he parades these men through one at a time, these women through, whoever can come, he parades them through, and everyone essentially says the same thing. How in the world do you expect me to tell you what you dreamed? Why don't you tell me the dream and I'll tell you the meaning? 
And for whatever reason, that's not the game that he wants to play. He wants someone to tell him the dream. And the conclusion is no one can do that. And that's when Daniel comes into the story. Look what we read later in Daniel chapter 2. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Daniel goes on to explain to the king what it was that he dreamed. And what he dreamed was a statue. And the statue in his dream maybe looked something like this, just to give you a visual. There's this giant statue set up on this plane. The head of it was made of gold. The body of it was made of silver. The bottom was bronze. And the, the legs and the feet of iron and clay. Daniel says, this is what you dreamed, and the statue was there, and it was very impressive. And then all of a sudden, a giant rock came crashing into the scene, smashed at the feet of this statue, and just demolished the whole thing. Okay? That's the dream. What does it mean? Daniel goes on to explain, look, the different layers of this statue are the different kingdoms that are to come. The head is Babylon. You're the greatest. You're made of gold. You're powerful. You control the whole world. Nobody denies that. Next is another kingdom made of silver. We know that that's uh, the Persians. He says next is another kingdom. After them, bronze. We know that's the Greeks. Next is another kingdom, mixed feet, mixed with iron and clay. We know that that's the Romans. And Daniel says, in that day of that fourth kingdom, that fourth empire, Something is going to invade this world that just blows everything up. It's a kingdom like you've never seen before. And the point of it ought to be pretty plain to Nebuchadnezzar. Look, you're powerful. We understand that. And there's going to be other powerful kingdoms. There's going to be other great kingdoms. But there's a kingdom coming that is unrivaled in power. It's not just another layer in the statue. It's something from outside this world that's going to come and establish a new type of kingdom. So for now, Nebuchadnezzar, you would be wise to humble yourself and not to trust quite so much in power. Look at Nebuchadnezzar's response. King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face. He paid homage to Daniel. He commanded that an offering, an incense, be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Sounds like he's learned his lesson, right? But I told you this is a roller coaster, and it goes up and down. So almost as soon as those words come out of his mouth, look what we read in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. The scriptures say this, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Where did he get the idea to make a statue out of gold? It's from the warning that God gave him, right? You understand how perverse this is, how depraved this is? God gives him a warning. You better bring yourself down a few notches. 
And he takes that warning, and at first he says the right thing. He's paying lip service, and he's going through all the right motions. But then he turns around, and in his pride and his ego, he decides to take the idea from the warning, the statue, and to bring it to life, to celebrate his own power and his own greatness. For some of you, this is the the main thing that you need to hear this morning. We've gone through this series. We've talked about different little G-gods. Maybe we've talked about the one that you're wrestling with. Maybe we haven't. And we won't talk about the specific thing that you're wrestling with. But some of you in this series, as we've talked about idolatry and how it looks in our lives, you've come under conviction. And you've sat in this room and you have said all the right things to God. You've confessed, this is a problem in my life. You've said to yourself, I need to do something about this and I need to deal with it. And then a few weeks down the road, you're going to go back to the exact same foolishness. You're going to make the exact same mistake that Nebuchadnezzar made. You're going to take a warning where God says, you need to deal with this little G-God, with this instance of idolatry in your life. And you're going to pay lip service to it in this room, and it's all going to sound great. And then you're going to turn around and go back to the same nonsense. That's what Nebuchadnezzar does. And he builds this giant statue. And I think you remember the story. We're not going to read the, the heart of the story that follows. But this is where he sets the statue up, and he gets the musicians, and he says, look, when the music hits... You hit the floor. When the guys start playing, you're going to get on your face and you're going to pay homage to this statue that represents my power and my greatness. And you remember Daniel's buddies, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We remember them as uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're, They're Babylonian names is what we remember them by. And you remember that when the music hit, they refused to bow. And they knew the command that if you don't bow, you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. And they just said, we're not going to bow. And they were brought before Nebuchadnezzar and they said, look, God can deliver us in this. But even if he doesn't deliver us, we're not bowing down to the statue. We absolutely will not do it. We're not afraid. Courage comes from worshiping the true God. Fear comes from worshiping a little G-God. And you remember he throws them into the fire. They survive the fire. There's a fourth walking around with them in the fire. He brings them out. The hairs of their head aren't even singed. Their clothes don't even smell like smoke. And look at Nebuchadnezzar's response. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel. He's delivered his servants who trusted in him. They set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, language that speaks of anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And again, you read that and you say, ah, the light bulb's gone off. He got it. But we're not done with the roller coaster yet. Look at Daniel chapter 4, verse 4. In verse 5, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. You remember earlier we said that when we're comfortable, we fall into the illusion, we fall into the lie that we're in control of things. Well, he's at ease and he's prospering. Verse 5, 
I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. This is a little bit different than the first dream. He calls for Daniel, and he wants Daniel to interpret the dream. And the dream is pretty simple. There was this giant tree, this big, amazing tree. And in the dream, an angel, a mighty angel, is sent to chop the tree down. And if you're Nebuchadnezzar at this point, you're probably able to put the dots together, right? Like, God's given you a dream. He gave you this lesson where these Jewish men walked out of the fire unharmed. You've had two sort of lessons on the same issue. When he has the dream, i got to think he kind of has an idea what's coming. But he calls for Daniel. He says, Daniel, tell me about the dream. Tell me what this means. And this is interesting. The Bible says that Daniel is alarmed this time. He knows what the dream means, and he's a little bit hesitant to tell the king. But he goes on, and he talks to Nebuchadnezzar, and he says to him, this is God's going to cut you down. In your pride, in your ego, in your trusting in your own power, God's had enough of it. And at the appointed time, he's going to chop you down. You're this big, huge tree. You think you have all this reason to boast and trust in your power, and God's just going to chop it down. And what he says to him, in my paraphrase, you can read the, the, the rest of the story in the middle here, is you're going to lose your mind. You're going to go bonkers. Like, this is not going to end well for you. Look what we read later in Daniel 4, starting in verse 28. All of it, meaning everything that Daniel said, all of it came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, and that's an interesting detail, it didn't happen immediately. It wasn't just an instant thing. But at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty, what? Power. As a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. It's not your power. God rules over the kingdoms of men, and He gives it to whomever He wants. Immediately, The word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. In your life, the consequence of chasing a little g-god may not be quite as dramatic as this. We may not find you out in the field, out north of town, Scrounging in the dirt, long hair, long fingernails. But this is an illustration of what we've said every single week. Little g-gods will always disappoint, they will never deliver, and they will always destroy. It may be in dramatic fashion, like what you see with Nebuchadnezzar. It may be 
very, very quiet, without a lot of public fanfare. But if you chase little G gods, what you'll find when you get what you're chasing is that they always disappoint. They promise you the moon, and you don't get it. They never deliver. They promise you autonomy. If you just had more money, things would be better. If you just had love or children, or if you just had this, if you just had that, if you just had a little more power, if you just had a little success, things would be better. They don't deliver you. They always disappoint, they never deliver, and they always destroy. And Nebuchadnezzar learned that. What you also see in this story as you read the last few verses is this. If you will lay down your little g-gods and repent of your idolatry, there is grace mercy, and forgiveness. For those who will turn, confess their folly, you will find that God is abounding in steadfast love. He is eager and ready to forgive. There is grace and there is mercy and there is forgiveness. We'll look at the last few verses from Daniel 4. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. You read those verses and you say, so is that when the light bulb really went off? Is that when he really got it? And the answer, if we're honest, is we don't know. Bible scholars and historians sort of disagree. Was this the time when he really, really got it and the truth sank home? Or was this just another up and down on the roller coaster? The Bible sort of leaves us to wrestle with that and to wonder about that. But in our wrestling and looking through this story and the ups and the downs, there's several things that are very, very clear when you think about little g-gods. Things that God was trying to teach Nebuchadnezzar and by implication things that God was trying to teach us. So we'll end with these thoughts. Number one, power makes a very cruel God. A very cruel God. Adam and Eve thought that a little more control over their own lives and destiny would make them happy. The Bible says it killed them. Nebuchadnezzar thought that his power was to be celebrated and paraded and acknowledged, and it drove him insane. It doesn't matter what the little G-God is that you're chasing. It may be power. It may be something else. It will always disappoint. It will never deliver. And it will always destroy. There's a great illustration of this in a book written by C.S. Lewis. Many of you have heard of a series of books he wrote called The Chronicles of Narnia. And in one of those books, one of the few of, of this series that they've made into a movie, you meet a character named Eustace 
Scrub. And just from the name, you know he's a, a, a bad guy. You know he's not a good guy. Eustace Scrub. This is the, the kiddo that they cast to play in the movie, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So you meet Eustace and you find that for Eustace, it's all about power. It's all about power. For Nebuchadnezzar to trust in power, it means building giant statues and making people bow down to them and sort of flexing his muscles in that way. But when you're a little kid, you don't get to build statues of gold and make people bow down to them. Nevertheless, you can still lust after this little g-god of power, and Eustace did. He's cruel to animals just because he can be, just because he can exercise control over them. He's a bully to people at school kids that he interacts with. He tries to bully them and control them. He's always tattling on everybody because he wants to have control over people. He wants people to fear him and do what he wants them to do. So he's always looking for control. He's always looking for power. And in the book and in the movie, Eustace comes across a treasure. And the treasure is a dragon's treasure. And I know this is somewhat fanciful, but track with me. It's a dragon's treasure, and he looks at this treasure, he finds it, and he says, I want it. I want it, I want it, I want it. Not so much because he just wanted money, but because he wanted money because he thought it would give him power over people, control over people. It would be an ultimate end to get his own way in life, and so he wants this treasure, and he he lusts after this treasure. He desires this treasure, and what he finds out pretty quickly is that this treasure, a, a, a dragon's treasure, turns him into a dragon. He becomes a dragon, which at first he thinks, this is the greatest. This is the best. Look at all the power I have. People are afraid of me, and people are scared of me, and people will do what I want them to do. And he enjoys it for a season. And then he realizes that it really doesn't give him all the things it promised to give him. It's a little bit disappointing. It doesn't deliver him from the emptiness that he feels. And it's actually destroying him from the inside out. And he sort of has this change of heart, and he decides, I don't want to be a dragon anymore. And what he finds is that there's nothing he can do about it. He's given himself over to this little g-god. Remember we said that little g-gods promise us autonomy and freedom. And what he finds out is now now I'm enslaved to this little g-god. I can't break myself free from it. I lusted after this thing. I wanted this thing. I thought it would make me happy and make me free and all of these things. And in the end, it ruined me. It reminds me of the children's book. We read this book in our house all the time, Where the Wild Things Are. You read that book with your kids? There's this little boy, and all he wants to be is the boss, and he wants to yell at everyone and be snappy and snarky and ugly and hateful. And he goes to this imaginary place, and he's in control of all the wild things, and they all do what he tells them to do. And then he sort of sits down and realizes, I don't want to be here anymore. I just want to be where somebody loves me. I thought I wanted to be the boss, but it didn't make me happy. In the book, where the wild things are, all he has to do is get on his imaginary boat and sail back to reality. But Lewis is more realistic than where the wild things are, and Lewis explains to us that Eustace cannot free himself from this curse. There's nothing he can do to fix the mess that he's in. We'll come back to Eustace in a minute. Number two, Jesus alone makes sense of the story. 
Jesus alone makes sense of the story. You remember the first dream that Nebuchadnezzar had? Nebuchadnezzar had this giant stone comes crashing in. And Daniel explains to the king, in the days of this fourth kingdom, in the days of Rome, this new kingdom is going to invade. It's going to obliterate everything you've ever known. And it's going to be a kingdom unlike any other kingdom. And this new kingdom, this stone that comes crashing in, turns into a great mountain that fills the whole earth. And it lasts forever and ever and ever. It's the rule and the reign of the kingdom of God. And the Jewish people heard that vision from Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel, and they said, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting for someone just to come in and blow Rome to smithereens. What did they get instead? They got a baby born outside of Bethlehem in the middle of the night, quietly, humbly, and what they didn't realize that is in the birth of that baby, the stone invaded. And the kingdom was established that would never be uprooted. That's why when that baby grew up and became a man, the very first thing that he said when he started to preach was what? Mark chapter 1. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus understood the stone has come. Rome has not finally been obliterated, but the kingdom has been established. And he called people to repent and believe the gospel, to understand that he was the Messiah, that he came in his first coming not just to blow everything up, but to save his people, to seek and save the lost, to be a servant, and as a servant to give his life for those people. The last song we sang was taken right out of the book of Philippians. And in the heart of the book of Philippians, it describes Jesus becoming a servant and humbling himself, not only in becoming a servant, but becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross to save us from the idolatries that we can't get rid of on our own. The Bible also says, right there in Philippians 2, same passage, the day is coming where this king comes back and he does blow it all up. And it is dramatic. And every knee will bow and every tribe and tongue and nation and language will confess that Jesus Christ is the King. Jesus alone makes sense of the story that you read in the book of Daniel. And the follow-up to that, the last idea is this. Jesus can save you from your idolatry. You can't save yourself. The Republicans or the Democrats or the Independents can't save you. Getting your way at church or at work or at home, having control and power won't save you. Living under the illusion that you're actually in control of your life won't save you. Jesus can save you. And that's where we come back to Eustace. And I love the, the picture that Lewis paints in this story. Remember, Eustace, we left him as a dragon and he can't fix his problem. He meets a lion in the story, and the lion's name is Aslan. And Aslan says to him, well, all you got to do is change yourself back. Just peel the dragon scales off. That's all you got to do. So Eustace the dragon starts peeling these dragon scales off. And every time he peels a layer off, he finds another layer underneath it. And what Lewis is saying is sin is not just this external thing that we can just throw off. Sin is something that takes root in us. It doesn't matter how many layers of dragon scales he peels off. He is dragon through and through. He can't save himself. 
And that's when Aslan speaks up and he's made his point. Eustace understands, I can't fix this. And Aslan says to him, I can take it off. But you're not going to like it. And he takes him off. And this is what Eustace says about that experience. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep, I thought he had, it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. He peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch. And smaller than I'd been, I'd turned into a boy again. And in the story, he understands that Aslan comes and changes him from the inside out. And he saves him from that that he can never, never on his own power save himself from. And that's the lesson that God is trying to drive home to Nebuchadnezzar. As he rides this roller coaster of sin and rebellion and repentance, back and forth and back and forth. And we wonder, where did it really end up? Was there a round four? Did God give up on him? What happened? Did he get it after round three? And the text leaves that open so that you wrestle with it. And ultimately, you put yourself into the story and say, how many times is God going to have to warn me before I get the point? How many times am I going to have to ride this roller coaster up and down? of saying all the right things, of acknowledging, yes, this is an issue in my life that I need to deal with, and then I turn around the next week and I do the same foolish stuff. Maybe the problem is you're just sort of trying to morally reform yourself on your own power. You're like Eustace trying to to take his own dragon scales off. And you realize, I just can't shed idolatry from the outside of me like a shirt because I'm idolater through and through. And my only hope is for Jesus to save me and to change me from the inside out. This story of Nebuchadnezzar and all of these stories we've pieced together in this series are reminding you, you can't save yourself. You can't rid yourself of the idolatries that you see in your life. But Jesus can. We sang a minute ago a song called Jesus is Better. And it's a great reminder that when we deal with these issues in our life, we're not just trying to get rid of something, but we're also trying to turn to something. We're not just turning from sin, but we're also turning to Jesus. He's the one that makes sense of these stories, and he's the one that can save you. I want you to bow, and we're going to pray together before we sing one last song. Father, we come to you this morning. We acknowledge you as the great one. As the only true God, these stories in Daniel remind us that you and you alone are God. These stories remind us that we see the same tendencies in this pagan king that we see in our own lives. Father, we take a warning from you, we say the right thing, and we go back to the same mess that we were in the middle of. Father, our prayer this morning is not that you would just create a a conviction and a, a moment of clarity in our lives, but Father, that you would change us, that you would break us. 
Father, that we would see the folly of our idolatry and that we would run from it to you. Father, that we would stop seeking freedom and happiness in little g-gods, but that we would seek them in you. Father, we pray for your spirit to work in our hearts. Father, we pray that it would not just be in this room, but that it would flow out into our lives as we leave this place. But Father, we pray that it would begin right now, and we pray for that work of your spirit in Jesus' name.